0: Welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Katie Munoz. Luis Hernandez is out today. Another hot topic issue was squeezed into this week's special session in Tallahassee. It's not Disney. This time, it's condo reform. Lawmakers had the goal at the outset of this week to address the rising property insurance rates across Florida. Unexpectedly, lawmakers added condo reform measures to their agenda, and they've now passed what's expected to become a new law upon Governor Ron DeSantis' signature, These are reforms that were not agreed upon during the regular session earlier this year. Calls for the state to look at and make laws around condo safety have been coming from condo owners and the families of the victims of the collapse in Surfside last summer, which killed 98 people. WLRN reporter Veronica Zaragovia has been closely following the aftermath of that tragedy for nearly a year now in court as well as the legislative proposals. And she joins us now. Welcome, Veronica. (laughs) Thank you, Katie. What has the reaction been in Surfside from victims' family members since the legislature announced that it was adding condo safety reform to the special session this week? Has anybody been outspoken? Yeah, um, they were surprised
1: and certainly very pleased that it was added. Um, A few of the outspoken families I've been in touch with, for instance, the Langisfeld. Family, uh, Martin and Pablo, who have continuously spoken out about wanting the legislature to to pass a bill to make sure that this collapse wouldn't happen again, were pleased to see that this made it into a special session and it's now going to the governor's desk. So I would say everybody is happy, but they feel like um, this is not the end of it and that Florida should continue to look at this and and tighten it um, in sessions to come.
0: So this may not be the only, they're hoping maybe this isn't the only condo reform we see come from the state.
1: Right. But I guess it was a big, you know, there's a lot in this bill and certainly provisions that hadn't, that were, uh, that didn't allow this legislation to pass, you know, to make it to the finish line during the regular session. So I think everybody is quite pleased that this first Step has been finished and um, I imagine they'll continue to look at how else to tighten uh, condo laws in Florida so that, that they can avoid, you know, they can cover all the bases and make sure that that buildings are sound to live in.
0: Well, I mean, the timing on this was also pretty incredible because in the span of about two days, the Florida House and the Florida Senate each unanimously passed this new bill and it's awaiting the governor's signature already it will become effective immediately upon his signature. Can you just walk us through a little bit of what is in this big bill and what are some of the highlights of the changes that are coming?
2: Yeah,
1: absolutely. So ultimately, the the two chambers, the House and the Senate, have to agree on one version of a bill that makes it to the governor's desk. And so this Senate version has a provision in it that came from the house actually that requires condo associations to fully fund a non-waivable reserve so that's money that's needed to make repairs and buildings that can't be you know kicked to some other time um they're gonna have to have that on hand and it's additional money than your hoa fee that you pay every month um that so that if there is some kind of catastrophe, there's money, or, or to, to prevent it, there's money on hand to make repairs that need to be made. Um, it also creates an inspection program. That's probably the biggest part as well. Um, these are milestone inspections for condo and co-op buildings that are three stories or taller. So how it is written is that 30 years after initial occupancy, after it's been built, and um, people are living in it, then there has to be an inspection, and, but it's 25 years if the building is within three miles of the coast. And then they would happen every 10 years thereafter. And inspection records actually have to, would, will need to be published online and shared with tenants. Oh, and there's wow. gonna be a lot more transparency than what was going on, for instance, in the former Champlain Tower South.
0: Well, and I wonder too, Veronica, I mean, we already had locally in South Florida counties, some of these inspection requirements and they were every 40 years. So, you know, how does this bill statewide impact changes locally that we're going to need to see?
1: Well, they're going to have to be uh, sooner and they've decided that 25 years would be the initial, you know, for a building like a building along the the beach and Surfside. Um, So they're moving that up and we have a, a very Uh, unequal situation in Florida and really it's in South Florida for instance you have Miami-Dade and Broward counties and then some individual towns or cities have passed for instance Boca Raton and Surfside have already agreed to make their inspection process sooner than 40 years and then other parts of the state don't have any such requirements and so now it's going to be across the board we have you know a lot of a lot of Buildings that are were built in the '80s during this um, real estate boom, and that really need to be closely inspected.
0: And I wonder, hearing you talk about, so this bill changes the rules around the kind of reserve funds that condo associations are required to have, and then it's gonna it's gonna create um, requirements for inspections sooner than what we've got on the books right now. Do we know yet how much this could increase costs for some people who live in these buildings? Is there any pushback or concern about the fear of rising costs for these tenants? Uh, That's a great question.
1: It's going to depend on the building. Certainly, you know, how many tenants or how many, sorry, how many condo units are in a building. And because everybody shoulders some of that responsibility. So if you live in a smaller building, you're probably going to have to, I, you know, this is all so. I don't want to misspeak, but it's it it will depend. There's not going to be a kind of uniform um, reserve amount that you'll have to be paying, and it's it's definitely. I mean, this was this the the point that that um, held up this legislation in the regular session. It's ah. this requirement for people to pay more. We have, for instance, so many. Retirees living in Florida, and it's not easy when you're on a you know, when you're retired to make these payments. I think that will be, um, that it's just not going to be easy for everyone to make the payments. I, I, we might start seeing, I had spoken to an insurance expert. I mean, these are these, this is all tied together with the problems we've been having in Florida with the insurance market because without requiring that that an inspection process happen or that buildings have their reserve money on hand then insurers see a lot of risk and that makes also it's very you have to have insurance to get a mortgage for instance and that's very expensive that could be expensive too if there's no regulation like this um, on the books and so it's gonna maybe seem like you have to pay more but then maybe your insurance monthly insurance might um become less because now the, there's less risk. It's so new, you know,
0: so I, I'm not an expert on on that side of things. But um, But it makes it sense that they're tied together like that. And hearing you explain yeah. that really helps in a visual sense of imagining somebody who's on a, perhaps a fixed income living in a unit and then they get slapped with a special assessment that will increase their monthly payments significantly. It's it all understanding the bigger Puzzle here. Yeah.
1: And that transparency part of this and when you're looking and let's say people who haven't yet bought a an, uh, condo and at least now they're going to, it's going to be very clear, like what has to be done, how much you would be paying. And I think that that will also help for prospective buyers as well. But I mean, certainly it's going to be challenging for people who already live in their units and um, we'll have to see, I think, there's a, I've been told by an insurance expert that maybe um, some, some seniors will decide it's just too expensive to live here, and so unfortunately we'll have to see what, what plays out um, in that respect.
0: I'm speaking with WLRN reporter Veronica Zaragovia. She covered the condo building collapse in Surfside last June. And since then, she's closely covered the aftermath in the courtroom and in the legislation. We're talking about the legislature meeting for a special session this week and adding condo reform measures into their agenda midweek. So you can read more about the the proposed legislation that's been signed by the Florida House and Florida Senate and how they would impact people living in condos over on our social media. That's at WLRN Sundial. Veronica, what has been the response to this bill from victims or just people living maybe in beach condos in the Surfside community or up and down South Florida's beaches? I think people
1: feel relieved to know that after this harrowing disaster that happened so close to many of us here in South Florida, that the legislature passed it and that the governor is going to sign this into law i mean everybody wants to feel like their home is their safest place to be um and and so i certainly can't imagine that anyone would feel like this was an unfortunate development um and it, and, and that it's reflected in the fact that this both the house and the senate passed um this Unanimously, so all lawmakers across the aisle uh, were in favor and that reflects what their constituents would feel. So um, I think that's going to bring a lot of relief to a lot of people to know that what happened in Surfside wouldn't be repeated Uh, as I could. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And in the past, too, I think another side of it, we've seen the enforcement of maintenance and the enforcement of inspection rules really fall short. So does this bill include any guidance for maybe how some of the penalties for not doing inspections on time or not having the right reserve funds on time, you know, what's the inform enforcement side of that? Yeah, I think there definitely will be,
1: I mean, there is like, it's there will be enforcement enforcement of, um, the inspection process. And I think this way it'll avoid because a lot of what, um, The holdup from the association at the Champlain Tower South. Um, You know, some people maybe were taking a little longer to make their assessment payments. Um, There's just a lot of fighting that was going on. And I think this will help to eliminate a, a lot of like. What goes on in associations, um, because some some unit owners might not want to make payments or might not be able to make payments. I think there's this might get a lot more organized and um, leave it less up to like the fighting that might be going on behind the scenes. So I think that will help in that respect.
0: We have the behind the scenes of the lawmakers coming to a deal on this issue, and then you have the behind the scenes. As you've continued to cover the aftermath of the Surfside tragedy and the people who have been affected, you've been following them in the courtroom. And I'm curious, thinking about some of the settlement news we've seen, what is the latest from this week that's happened in court?
2: Well, a
1: lot's been happening in court uh, this week. They the the economic loss claimants the people who survived the disaster or the collapse but uh, lost their homes their condo units they made a request after the families of the 98 victims um had reached had received you know they they their attorneys were able to reach a nearly one billion dollar settlement they made a request for some more funding especially now that the property has been officially sold and so judge michael hansman listened to that in court this week and agreed to increase their settlement from 83 million to 96 million and that 96 million is what the aggregate units like what an an appraiser had valued all of the units together in a court process after the collapse and um, still some of the owners are not happy and think they could have gotten more, but they're, certainly they've been, they have all, any, any condo owner that I've spoken to feels grateful that Judge Hansman made this boost in their settlement. And then as well, he um, explained what happens next with the families of the victims in terms of the process ahead for them TO FILE A CLAIMS FORM THAT WOULD THEN um, MAKE MONEY AVAILABLE TO THEM FROM THAT ONE BILLION DOLLAR SETTLEMENT.
0: AND WHEN WILL FAMILIES OF VICTIMS FROM THIS COLLAPSE START TO SEE SOME OF THOSE SETTLEMENT PAYMENTS? I KNOW FOLKS HAVE BEEN SEEING you know, LARGE NUMBERS THAN HEADLINES, BUT WHEN WILL SOME OF THAT MONEY ACTUALLY START TO GET TO THE PEOPLE IMPACTED BY THIS?
1: RIGHT. WELL, WHAT JUDGE Hansman HAS SAID IS THAT STARTING AT... Um, in very early august he's going to start having hearings throughout that month to hear from family members who wish to talk about their loved ones who died in the collapse and they don't have to they could just file the claims form and then he's going to start like deciding on those allocations Um, in August and in September. His goal would be for the families to get their payments in September and the condo unit owners would also receive their payments this summer. And uh, so that's the next process involves, you know, listening to the family members and then making those decisions on how much each family would get.
0: Yeah. Have there been more conversations about how that money from these large settlements is going to be divided up amongst all of the people that Need need it?
1: Yeah. So by law, the way it works in a situation like this one, where the the, the money is not coming from donations the way it did after the the Boston uh, marathon bombing or the Pulse shooting, when it's um, in a, this process like this, then what they do is that they decide based on, for instance whether the victim was a primary provider financially of, of a family, um, was the victim uh, a retiree who no longer, you know, was earning an income, um, was it a child, was the person a nanny or a doctor? I mean, it's it's a very difficult discussion for, for some people to to process because I mean, it. some family members have told me it's really demeaning to, to to say because my loved one was retired that they're not worth what the doctor was earning. And um, that's uh, an attorney has explained to me that basically what they need, what the judge will be doing and the um, administrators of the fund, they're two, a former uh, retired judge and an attorney who are administrating the $1 billion they will be trying to make their best guess uh, as to what a jury would have awarded each of the claimants had this gone to court. Um, and that process was avoided by reaching these settlements. So it's, it's, it's exactly what happened after 9-11 and um, a lot of families find that process pretty difficult.
0: It sounds, it sounds hard to talk about in a lot of ways. Yeah. I am curious with these settlements, they're now decided so are the families of victims from this tragedy are they done going to court hearings is there other business that they have that still needs to be resolved in the legal system an attorney who represented victims told me that the process the
1: court process isn't finished there will still be hearings um, and and certainly there will be these hearings for the family members to speak with the judge or the administrators of the fund about their loved ones but those will not be public and that will be a private process but there there will it's expected that there will be other hearings but in terms of some things have been resolved for instance this 96 million settlement for the for the survivors who lost their condo units he said that that's it that there will not be another penny going towards that deal and um so so they you know if they nobody has opted out that was an option you could have opted out and then started a lawsuit on your own and Mm -hmm. nobody did so it seems that that process is finished and so for now um, a lot of times we just find out about court hearings as like the days unfold when sometimes the court appointed receiver might receive a, a request to file a motion and then the judge will consider if you'll hear it or not. So sometimes, you know, things um, unfold and we're not quite sure what what's coming, but there will be some more hearings before all of this is concluded.
0: Well, WLRN's reporter Veronica Zaragovia, you know, thank you so much for joining us today. The legislative piece, now that the Florida legislature has acted on condo safety reform, all plays into this. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Still to come, Hurricane season officially kicks off next week. We help you plan. Welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Katie Munoz. Luis Hernandez is out today. Forecasters came out with their official predictions for this year's hurricane season. Hint, they're saying it will be above average. Again, this is the seventh consecutive season predicted to be above average or above normal. Should that change our definition of normal for storms in South Florida? Joining us now to talk about the types of storms to expect and the factors that contribute to these forecasts is WLRN's environment reporter, Jenny Stiletovich. Jenny, thank you for joining us. Hi, Katie, thanks for having me. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Atmospheric Administration. There you go, or NOAA. It's easier to say. They're saying that we can expect another above-normal Atlantic season. So, can we just start, sort of, start off here and understand what is a normal season? What would a normal season look like? Sure, I'll try.
2: <laughs> so,
3: so in a normal season, we would have fourteen named storms, seven hurricanes, and six major hurricanes with the wind speeds over, we're a Cat Three over one hundred and ten miles an hour. Um, And I will say that normal, that um, average season, was just adjusted last year. It had been 12 named storms and six hurricanes. They go through every 10 years and they look at the, 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 the record and what's going on and make adjustments if needed. And so last year they adjusted it up.
0: So experts have already adjusted what our new normal for storms kind of looks like. When they say that this year is going to be another above normal, or above the new normal, how right. many more storms are we predicting here now? What's, what's on the table for 2022?
3: So, so they give a range just because, you know, there's a lot of lot of factors that go into this. So they say the range for this year, they're calling for 14 to 21 named storms. So, you know, 14, if we only had 14, would fit it into a normal season. However, within that range, they say there's like a 65 percent chance that we hit the above normal mark so that we'll have more than the 14 named storms.
0: And, you know, can we just call it a scientific guess or Is the prediction more reliable than than a guess here?
3: I think they would prefer a prediction
0: (laughs) 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 because they put a
3: lot of effort into building models and looking at all the factors. And this is not just a guess by any means. There are, um, you know, they, they 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 look at. Uh, conditions now they look at that at what historically happened in hurricanes when conditions were like this Um, they if you want me to now I can get into all the things that they say are are driving this this forecast for for an above average season
0: yeah let's take that one at a time so what are some of the reasons that they think this one is going to be really above normal
3: right so for one we're having a lingering La Nina not an El Nino but a La Nina which um, creates drier conditions here and it also has weaker upper level winds Uh, an El Nino uh, produces higher uh, stronger upper level winds that can basically knock down hurricanes so we're always happy when we see an El Nino but this year that La Nina is expected to to linger uh, through the season um, the other thing that they are expecting is a busy uh, monsoon season off the west coast of Africa this is where some of the strongest and most durable or longer longest lasting storms are seeded um, before they make their way over here and then the other thing that we are like dealing with chronically is higher, uh, ocean temperatures. The ocean's just warmer. Um, and that warm ocean water is the thing that fuels hurricanes as they, they move across the Atlantic or up through the Caribbean.
0: And so those seem like three pretty big factors to to put into one here. One hurricane season, but state officials and emergency officials recently gathered for the the annual governor's hurricane conference. So what normally goes goes on at these conferences?
3: So these conferences, the governors' conferences, is really, is really for emergency managers. Um, they'll they'll talk about the coming season, but they talk a lot about what's the best way to message things to the public to convince people to prepare Mm. do the kinds of things and then there's a little bit of a trade show aspect to it so in one part of the convention center it's actually kind of fun they'll have uh all the new gear uh, for emergency responders um i shouldn't say fun that's not that's not actually a good word but they have like you know high water vehicles and um uh just a lot of the equipment that they can use um in emergency conditions
0: well, and I'm wondering too, you know, does everyone at that conference agree that there's a link between climate change and weather and patterns? You know, do all of these emergency managers buy into the science? The
3: emergency managers that I heard speak do. you know, I think it's 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 generally accepted that I mean, not generally. I mean, that there's there's enough evidence now to know that we are getting um, more intense hurricanes because of the warmer oceans and the warmer atmosphere.
0: Well, and we also know now that thinking about the link between storms and climate change, I know you mentioned higher ocean temperatures. Is it affecting the number of storms and, you know, and or the strength of the predicted storms? Strength yeah, course? I mean, they
3: they think that we are getting, you know, we're getting, we're, we're bound to get more intense hurricanes, um, it, you know, just because of the conditions that are factoring into it.
0: Well, and I know you also spoke with the National Hurricane Center Director Kenneth Graham, what have you noticed about how he approaches his job now, compared to when he first got the job?
3: Um, I think it's in his messaging. You know, he they, uh, we forget that that hurricane forecasters are really sort of about. Uh, warning about emergencies, you know, their first, their first goal, their first mission is to, you know, prevent harm and save lives. Um, And so when you hear Ken Graham talk, it's less about the ins and outs of the forecast and more about convincing people and ways to get that message out. Um, They've actually modernized a lot of the ways that they do uh, the messaging. They, I I mentioned this in a report earlier uh, this month, they stopped using all caps in their bulletins and, and now use, you know, more easily to understand advisories. Um, they've taken to say social media. They Ken Graham gets on Facebook a lot um, and during the season, during active storms, you can go to Facebook and very frequently he'll be giving an explanation of the advisory. Um, sometimes just as the advisory is coming out, they they do things on Twitter. He said they may even experiment with TikTok.
0: Wow. Well, and I recommend that everybody listen to that conversation. We have it over um, at wlrn.org slash sundial. And it was a really cool conversation to hear the two of you sort of geek out about the new ways to think about all of this technology and how it can hopefully make people safer. Um, I'm speaking with WLRN's environment reporter Jenny Stiletovich. It's been a really busy week for predicting a busier hurricane season. We're talking about what some of the forecasts mean for South Florida as people continue to prepare for the season that, by the way, officially arrives next week. We've got a lot of resources and more coverage as well as Jenny's conversation with Kenneth Graham over on our social media at WLRN Sundial. It was just a good listen. But, you know, Jenny, there is a debate often since hurricane season arrives next week did Mr. Graham say anything about extending the hurricane season or it coming any earlier than June 1st?
3: Yeah, this debate has been going on for, for a while now. This isn't the first year that it's come up. And, and what they worry about is, if, so, so these early season storms are often weaker. They think the reason they're seeing the preseason storms is just because they have better technology to, to detect them. Um, And they really worry about warning fatigue, that if they start the season earlier and start issuing warnings for things that, um, there has not been a hurricane, you know, before the season started since the 1970s. So while we may be seeing more of these storms, none of them rise to the level of hurricanes. So I think for them to extend the season and make it start earlier, Um, you know I I don't think they're convinced that that's that's what they need to do yet they are starting to issue outlooks earlier so the information is out there but when they swing into the mode where they're issuing advisories and you know and they start the season officially earlier there's a whole shift within the hurricane center that has to happen in terms of how they prepare and, and how they get ready and and it's also good to remember that when hurricane season ends like they get a little bit of a break that's when a lot of the forecasters take their vacation but then they go back to work pretty you know quickly and there's a bunch of stuff they do during the off season in terms of um refining their models especially like the storm surge model and and making sure they go through and ground truth it and 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 so it's not like they're sitting idle for the you know six months out of the year when the hurricane season isn't
0: happening Well, and from your conversations, you know, whether it was at this governor's conference or with other South Florida officials, I'm wondering what your overall level of confidence is that we in South Florida would be ready for a major storm if it hits us, you know, another Irma, for example. Hmm. You know, (laughs) the thing that I worry most about is, um,
3: how the public responds to the warnings. You know, they, the Hurricane Center itself, their their accuracy uh, has dramatically improved since 2000, 2005. You know, their, their 40%, their track forecast is 40% better. Wait, I'm getting my numbers mixed up. There's between 40 and 50% improvements in both track and intensity. Um, and so I know that when, you know, I was a kid and when when there was less accuracy, you'd get these forecasts and it was always like, there was such a range of where a storm could go uh, that you'd wait until it got closer. Now they're five days out, three days out They're They're much better at saying where exactly it's gonna go. So there's there's no, you know, the public really does need to pay attention to these things. We get new people arriving all the time who maybe don't have as much experience with a hurricane season. So, I mean, As far as preparation, what I worry most about is whether or not the public is listening and doing its role in preparing.
0: No, that makes sense. That makes sense. You had also reported about something that I wanted to ask you about. And while I've got you, you know, scientists have been looking at this thing in the Gulf of Mexico, a loop current. So this has some people on edge because it can fuel storms. It could make storms worse. How might that affect us here in South Florida or would it? So it's the loop
3: current and the gulf would be really the Gulf Coast although I say that that it would matter to the Gulf Coast but Wilma um, cross the, the loop current in 2005 and we certainly got hit by by Wilma just because a storm comes up from the Caribbean doesn't mean it won't make a make a right turn towards towards us and, and cross the peninsula and we feel the impacts. Um, there I talked to Nick Shea at the University of Miami who's an oceanographer who's been studying this loop current for 30 years and there are a lot of people who are looking at it and they it is it, it originates in the Caribbean the reason why it's so um concerning when it comes to hurricane season is that it carries warm water hundreds of feet deeper than surface water. We know surface water is what gets sucked up in a hurricane and what fuels it and what what Nick Shea has said and other folks who look at it know that when a hurricane crosses that current you know it sucks off that hot water off the top and then there's another layer underneath that's hot and enough you know it, the further deep that hot water extends he says that can not only fuel a hurricane, but it but it risks rapid intensification, which is a, a scary process that happens where over 36 hours a storm can jump categories. When it does that and it's close to land, that can make it really hard for emergency officials to warn people, to give them the adequate warnings. Um, hurricane Michael, before it hit Mexico Beach, hit Nick. Shea says it crossed a Uh, an eddy that had spun off the current. So as the current moves further north, it bends. And when it makes that bend, it spins off these eddies. And those are these, you know, swirling pools of warm, deep water. And they move at a really slow pace, he says. So they can just linger and kind of meander along the coast. and, um, and, and And he says, you know, again, watching them for 30 years, it's something that we really... Need to keep a close watch on, and again, that's you know, more concern for the Gulf Coast. But as we saw with Katrina, Wilma, you know, and Rita, um, when when those storms crossed the the Loop Current, and and that was that was, I think Nick Shea called it the trifecta of hurricanes. It was a bad year.
0: Another reason for the public to take the messages from emergency management officials seriously and monitor. I, I did want to ask you, Jenny, too, because there, there, recently, you've covered a lot of hurricane news recently. But <laughs> there was a, a proposed ordinance from a Miami City Commissioner who wanted to prohibit planting any new mangroves or any tall-growing plants in order to protect waterfront views. But, but the reason I ask you about this is because we know mangroves protect our coastline against hurricanes, right? What what happened with that ordinance?
3: Right, right. I mean, and that's why I think it was puzzling to a lot of folks. Um, That ordinance was up for a first reading earlier this month, and he, Commissioner Joe Carroja, was the one who sponsored it. He. Uh, postponed it and said the city manager wanted more time to look at it. I reached out to the commissioner and he didn't respond to me. There are now a couple of organizations: um, Waterkeeper, new Waterkeeper, and the Bonefish Tarpon Trust, who have asked people to show up at meetings May 31st and June 9th. Uh, I just checked to see if there are agendas for those meetings, and they're not. I could not find them yet, so I don't know if it's coming back to the commission. I just don't know if that's going to be May 31st or June 9th.
0: Jenny, thank you so much. Really, all really, really good information. Thanks for having me. Jenny Stilatovich is WLRN's environment reporter. You can find more information from her about how you can prepare for hurricane season on our social media. That's at WLRN Sundial. And we would want to know what you want to know about the upcoming hurricane season. What questions do you have? You can stay in touch with us and ask us by text when you join our sundial text club you can send us any thoughts comments or questions by texting the word join to 786-677-0767 again that's the word join to 786-677-0767 and still to come it's wildlife thursday we're talking about a rare orchid yes plants are still considered wildlife we'll explain that next Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Katie Munoz. Luis Hernandez is out today. It's Wildlife Thursday, and we're talking about one of Florida's most rare and endangered orchids. Yes, plants are considered wildlife. According to Google, wildlife includes animals and flora. They're living and breathing organisms. These beautiful flowering plants have been sought after and even illegally hunted for centuries. The cigar orchid is one of those that almost vanished, in part due to over-harvesting. Hong Liu is leading efforts to study the population of this orchid and help save it. She's a professor in the International Center for Tropical Botany at Florida International University. Hong joins us now, welcome.
2: Well, oh, thank you for having me and uh, sharing a spotlight on our endangered orchids.
0: Well, I just love, I love the name of this. So the cigar orchid, I Googled it, but I need you to describe what this looks like because it's so colorful.
2: Right, so this is actually one of our biggest orchid uh, in uh, South Florida's landscape, uh, natural landscape. Uh, the, uh, the suitable the, or the stem, um, we, orchid biologists call them suitables, are shaped like cigar. And each one of them, when they are mature, they can reach uh, one to two foot, uh, two feet long. And because the shape look like cigar, that's I guess that's why where the name came from. And uh, actually, this orchid is also uh, quite um, abundant in um, Cuba, and so that name also comment uh, in that part of the uh, world uh, for this orchid.
0: Wow. That's really cool. I'm curious, can you paint us a picture of just sort of how would I know the difference between a cigar orchid if I'm walking past one and a different kind of orchid? What are the colors like?
2: Right. So, well, this orchid uh, flowers in March and April. And in fact, when it's not flowering, uh, it's quite difficult to spot a lot of times. And you do have to develop your search image for it um, and, uh, well, think about, you know, a, a, a huge cigar and, or, or cowhorn. that this is the, the other common name for this orchid. And when you walk in the, um, say, Big Cypress uh, forest, and usually, um, you know, the, the stem color is very subdued, kind of grayish color, and it really doesn't stand out. But when it's flowering, its inflorescence or the flowering stem is, can reach one meter uh, tall or long and full of uh, hundreds of flowers could be adorned on those uh, flowering uh, stalks. And the flower is, um, how do I describe this color? Yellowish and uh, purplish, not purplish, yellow. And, Orange color, I would say. And so it's um, very spectacular uh, looking, and that you will not miss when you walk in the uh, forest in March or April uh, when they are in bloom. So it
0: it sounds like the beauty's really captured you, but what is so special about this orchid in particular? Right.
2: So this is one of our, um, well, first of all, uh, I I hope. a LOT OF PEOPLE PROBABLY GET THIS IDEA THAT WE'RE LIVING IN a, we're SOUTH MIAMI IS a South, in, IN SOUTH FLORIDA IN tropical SUBTROPICAL uh, REGION. WE'RE PART OF THE CARIBBEAN. AND SO IN FACT, SOUTH FLORIDA IS A HOT SPOT FOR THE IN THE UNITED STATES FOR ORCHIDS. Uh, NEARLY 40 PERCENT uh, OF OUR UNITED STATES ORCHID OCCURRED IN SOUTH FLORIDA. AND THIS, really uh, thanks to our location close to the Caribbean. And so the cigar orchid, um, just like one of those 59 orchid species in our region that are uh, on the edge of the, its tropical distribution. So, um, and that's why uh, this uh, species, that all the populous tropical orchids that we have in South Florida, are quite important because they are at the northern uh, edge of the uh, global distribution for those orchids and they actually build the potential for uh, extending northward uh, in you know when the climate change uh, continues. So from that perspective you know the cigar orchid in our South Florida is very important but also because the past uh, logging and what you hinted actually at the beginning of the program that you mentioned, um, over collecting or poaching uh, at the earlier part of the uh, 20th uh, 20th century has reduced the population to a very small number. Um, So that's why it's very important to understand its population status uh, currently.
0: And I want to ask you more about that, but but I do want to get a sense because you in particular have spent decades protecting some of the world's most endangered orchids. You're also leading several conservation efforts in southwestern China, where the first orchid nature preserve is established. Wow. I'm wondering why, you know, what is it about this plant that has touched you? Where is your passion for it come from?
2: Um orchids is a very special group of plants um, it actually is one of the most diverse plant family um, in, you know in in the uh, plant kingdom um, so we have um what attract me in in china uh their orchids you know it, it's very different from the reason that why i study orchids in south florida so uh, in, in China, that part of the uh, world, uh, many orchids are being used as medicinal plants. And uh, over harvesting, uh, ongoing, I would say, ongoing over harvesting is the issue over there. However, in South Florida, um, where the over harvesting part is a is history now, however, that legacy. Uh, you know, the impact of that over-collecting in the the past persists.
0: Yeah, let me ask you about that, because it, you know, the cigar orchid, again, it's one of Florida's most rare and endangered orchids. When you mention poaching, you know, who is poaching these orchids? And do we know why they're poaching? Well,
2: at the beginning, uh, in the, uh, you know, 1920s, 1930s, when uh, Florida was first uh, settled, I mean, South Florida, and those plants are, you know, being seen as a house plant and just beautiful plant they want to have in their, in their yard, and uh, so they are being harvested that way. Um, and so who are the poachers? So that is a very, this is a very difficult to answer question. And there are people who are, you know, really love orchids. And which is a good thing. However, um, if, you know, they take the orchid from a wrong spot or, you know, illegally, obviously that will have consequence to the population, the natural population uh, of orchids in nature. So that is actually not just a South Florida issue, Uh, you know, it's a global issue that over collecting of orchids, wild orchids, uh, has been, you know, have a great impact on their survival uh, and conservation.
0: I'm speaking with Hong Liu. She is a professor at the International Center for Tropical Botany at FIU. We're talking about one of Florida's most rare endangered plants, the cigar orchid, and they're found in our local swamps. You can find more out about this story and the, see beautiful orchid photos on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Hung, you know, I, the U.S. National Park Service studies the population of cigar orchids in Big Cypress National Preserve, which is right next to Everglades National Park. And Big Cypress is hundreds of thousands of acres. When you've been there, you're looking for this rare flower. It, it sounds like you're looking for a needle in a haystack
2: it does feel that way (laughs) (laughs) yes however we do have help uh we have um very many records uh anecdotal records uh in the past decades uh from park rangers and also park visitors who reported to the park uh managers about what they what they saw and so we do have those help that GPS locations of uh, past sightings. And we also have, we'd reach out actually to a lot of uh, um, orchid uh, enthusiasts that, who hike into those swamps on their own times and looking for beautiful plants, including orchids and cigar orchids is one of them that they very often would like to see. And so we do have uh, reportings from uh, the community, uh, what, you know, at the beginning of this project starts, uh, and um, and those has been also quite helpful, those leads.
0: When you uh, connected with orchid enthusiasts on Facebook, and they came with you and your team into the field, and you kicked off this type of field work in December, I'm imagining the weather's a lot nicer at that time, but orchids <laughs> aren't flowering then. So yeah. take me there with you. I, I mean, I'm imagining it's long hikes. Do you yeah. have any stories of spotting a cigar orchid? And, and I'm just wondering what that feels like.
2: Yeah. Well, so actually there is a advantage that starting in the winter time, like December, when the big cypress, uh, actually the leaves are all gone, right? So the, our, the, the, uh, the, big cypress trees are our um, deciduous uh, trees in south florida so and the visibility is actually much better uh at this time before the uh those cypress trees uh gaining their new leaves Um, so as you you know walking in a cypress storm and uh you're actually you know aided by this um leafless, uh, forest and your, um, the, you know, the plants that, so cigar orchid is an epiphyte. I guess we did not actually uh, talk about that. So epiphyte means that those orchids, they grow on trees, trunks, tree trunks or s- tree, uh, stumps. And so, you know, we just scan the forest, uh, when we, you know, get in, uh, likely habitat, uh, which is normally, uh, cypress storm or cypress strand, and usually uh, that kind of several stems sticking out from
0: a tree trunk, it, it will, will catch your eyes. I just want to thank you, Hung Liu. This is the coolest orchid to hear about. Thank you for joining yeah. us today.
2: Thank you for having me, and, and thank you again for uh, putting a spotlight on our endangered orchid.
0: Well, and, and certainly you gotta see some photos of cigar orchids. We do have them at WLRN Sundial. That's our social media. But I, I just want to thank, you know, Hung Liu. She is a professor at the International Center for Tropical Botany at FIU. And you can also find out more about these orchids and, and read more about them at WLRN Sundial on Facebook and Twitter as well. And that's our Sundial program for this Thursday, May twenty sixth, 2022. We do have an announcement. Our Sundial book club pick for the month of June is the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Cuba An American History. By Ada Ferrer, It explores the island's history from its indigenous population to its relationship with the U.S. today and how all of that has culminated into Cuba's identity. You can join our book club by searching Sundial Book Club on Facebook. And coming up next week on the program, you're not going to hear Sundial on Memorial Day on Monday, but we'll be back on Tuesday, May 31st. I hope you have a great weekend. We will be remembering the U.S. military personnel who've given their lives while serving in the armed forces. I'm Katie Munoz. Thank you so much for listening. This program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.